Everybody, episode 120 of So What's Been Happening. This is Tuesday, the 21st of November. Uh, welcome to a Tuesday night in Melbourne. Got a very special guest with me tonight who's come all the way from San Francisco. As you'll see, a little bit of San Francisco livery in the background tonight. Uh, Mr. Jeremy Fish, uh, an iconic man in the world of art, done some amazing things with some amazing brands. So I look forward to touching on that uh, and his life story. We'll get to know a little bit about Jeremy uh, for people that don't know. Um, you'll definitely know who Jeremy Fish is and you won't forget the name by the end of this. Uh, and Jeremy's here in Melbourne launching a new exhibition, uh, his first exhibition in Melbourne. Um, it is known as, we will touch on that one in a second. So let's bring that up. Um, but just before we do, uh, let's bring on the great man. He doesn't need, really need, we could go with a big introduction, but I, at the end of the day, we, we want to hear his story. So we'll, we don't want to uh, cut any corners here and we want to tell, we want to ask Jeremy um, all the news and all the goss that he's got on his life. Uh, it's been a, been a big journey. So I look forward to bringing him up now. Here we go. Mr. Jeremy Fish, welcome to episode 120 of So What's Been Happening. How's it going, Aaron? Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks to have for having on. me, man. I appreciate it. Nice to be here. Yeah, you've uh it's been a long time coming, I guess, this trip, but it's it's a special one, a really exciting one to open a new uh launch of a gallery here with a show called The Koala Bee Champ. Um it's gonna be based in Collingwood. Uh it's must be an exciting time for you right now. Yeah, man. It's nice to be here. Uh I'm about as far away as you can get from home. And uh, the city's been really good to me. I've met a lot of nice people already. I'm excited to be here. Great time to be in Melbourne. I'm happy for the show. Beautiful. And uh, I really appreciate your time in jumping on and being generous with your time tonight uh, in talking about, um, obviously, you're on, the, you're on the road and I'm probably on a flight, more likely, um, for a day uh, that's officially known as Jeremy Fish Day. This is pretty cool. Uh, tell me a little bit about this and... How this came about, Jeremy Fish Day. Not many people get to say they've got a day that's named after them anywhere in the world, let alone San Francisco. Uh, yeah, you know, I did a project at San Francisco City Hall in 2015 where the Arts Commission asked me to do 100 drawings in 100 days to celebrate the 100th anniversary of our City Hall, which is a really remarkable uh, building in San Francisco and deserves to be celebrated. Uh, but it was an enormous amount of work and no days off for 100 days straight um so in the end they gave me an exhibition in city hall where i showed all the hundred drawings and uh chronicle books in san francisco made a little book out of all the drawings and then our mayor at the time ed lee who has since passed away rest in peace ed uh was nice enough to give me my own day and to be completely honest i think it was just supposed to be uh november 19th 2015 when it was issued but other than my birthday, I never expected to have a day. So I've decided I'm celebrating that annually, whether it was supposed to be or not. And fortunately or unfortunately, Mayor Ed Lee is no longer with us. So he's not going to argue with me about it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I celebrated annually. November 19th is a special day. And it was funny that this year uh, I was halfway around the world. And it turns out, you know, I'm a day ahead. So I had to celebrate uh, Jeremy Fish Day in the rearview mirror, which was pretty funny and something I'll never forget. 
Yeah. Um, have you been in? Have you been out of the country many times for Jeremy Fish Day previously? No. no and I, you know, I travel quite a bit, but it just I've never, uh, I've never. It only, you know, it's only been annual since 2015, and several years of that were COVID, so nobody went anywhere. Uh, but no, I've I've been in San Francisco every year that I've ever celebrated it. Yeah, right. Yeah, really cool. Um, well, welcome. Uh, breaking breaking the cycle and breaking the norm. Uh, very much so. To uh, thanks, man. Come out to Australia. It's a long way. Uh, let's face it, it's a long flight. Um, yeah, it is. But you've been here for a couple of days now and enjoyed your time so far. Yeah, yeah, I've had a great time. Uh, my host Eddie is a really wonderful dude, and I knew coming out here, if I was spending it with him, we'd have fun. Um, like I said, I you know, I like to travel. I like to see new places. I like that this that's a part of this job. Because when you're in art school, they aren't like, oh, you know, if you do pretty good, eventually this job will take you around the world. And like uh, my father had a job he didn't really like very much, but it allowed him to travel quite extensively. And I've often thought as I get older, it's wonderful that I've actually gone and seen more parts of the world than he did doing a job he didn't like. And I've been able to do this doing something I really love. And to be fair, one of the only things I was ever any good at. <laughs> yeah, well, there's there's one thing for sure is you've uh, you're good at it. Um, that's for sure. Uh, it's not something you just pick up. It's it's something crafted over many years of talent, no doubt. Um, all right. Let's go back to one of your first memories of art as a youngster, as a kid, how, how old do you, can you remember back to and um, how old were you and what, what kind of, what do you used to draw as a kid? Uh, I think like, I think every kid draws when they're little, you know what I mean? Like I, uh, I just, I, I don't ever remember not doing it. I think uh, drawing is one of those things you do when you're a little kid, cause you're not very critical of anything. And I think as people get older, they tend to stop drawing cause they're like, Oh, maybe I'm not that good at that. Uh, you become more critical and you analyze what you're doing more and you find better things to do with your time than sitting around messing around drawing. Uh, I always had really, really great art teachers as a little kid. And it was one of the only things in school I was any good at. Uh, my mother and my sister and my father were all really smart people who went to the same university and I just wasn't. Uh, I didn't really excel at very much in school and I mostly like making jokes and going to art class. And so... I think it was kind of like I didn't really there wasn't a lot of options when I got to be uh, a young man deciding where I was going to go in the world. Even my childhood teachers would have said he's probably going to go do some art because it's one of the only things he ever did well. Yeah. Yeah. So you obviously had a talent for art uh, as a youngster, for sure. Who what kind of grade level, you know, did you did you start to think or did the teachers really identify in you that you had something a little bit more special than some of the other kids, maybe? As far back as I can remember, honestly, like uh, one of my art teachers when I was a little kid was my friend's mom. And so she was super supportive and the kind of thing, like even when I was at her house, we would talk about it. And uh, they're just the art teachers were really, really supportive of what I did. My mother and my sister were also kind of supportive. Like uh, my mother's father was a master woodworker. And my mother's grandfather was a tailor professionally who moved to the United States from Italy to be the tailor for Teddy Roosevelt. So there was a tradition on my mother's side, my Italian side of my family, the D'Agostino family, of making stuff with their hands. And I remember from the time I was really little, uh, you know, my father and his father, they had a closet full of suits that they put on. And they put on that suit and that's what they wore to go make a living. My mother's father just like put on an apron and went into this room in the back of his house and made all this wonderful stuff out of wood. And I think as a little kid, when you're looking at, you know, what do adults do all day? And I was like, well, my dad puts on a suit and when he comes home, he seems kind of unhappy. And my grandfather goes into this little wood shop and makes all this incredible stuff and leaves pretty happy. And I think it, even as a small kid, I thought, I think I would rather do something with my hands and do something where I'm the boss. And I think that those experiences as a little boy definitely laid some seed and kind of at a very young age kind of made me think about what sort of adult could I imagine myself being. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they always say that uh, if you choose something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Um, and it's pretty true, that saying for sure. Uh, and obviously you've uh, you've been able to manipulate your career around uh, your talent. But some some of your career path has, has been a really interesting journey. Um, going back from growing up as, as a kid, skateboard, obviously, you know, that was the, that was your career. That That's what you loved. Uh, and you surrounded yourself with some cool people um and which were just at the end of the day the, the kids around town right um but it really became a fantastic journey 
for you in the skateboard uh, life as a, as a youngster um, with, an, with a great outlet to see great people? Yeah, I was lucky. I, I, uh, my mother and my sister and I lived in a small city in upstate New York. I was born in Albany, New York, and my mother and my sister and I lived in Saratoga Springs, New York from the time I was like eight until I was 18. And I didn't know it at the time, but Saratoga Springs is kind of an incredible place to grow up. But, you know, that's one of those things as a little kid, you don't really know until you get older and move away and have some perspective. Uh, Saratoga Springs had a great public school system, had a great public school arts system, uh, which I took full advantage of. It also had a very early uh, skateboard culture. And by early, I mean, like in the mid to late 80s, skateboarding was still pretty new. I mean, not new. It had been around for over you know 20 years, but it was not popular in parts of the world where the climate was really freezing cold. And it had really had a, had a huge surge in upstate New York right around the time I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. And eventually uh, they built a skate park that was like walking distance from my house. And I was one of the first people to start going there. And, you know, I spent all of junior high and high school basically hanging out at this skate park, which is now uh, the oldest skate park in New York State, which is pretty crazy and definitely makes me feel old. Uh, but it's also kind of a sign of what a concrete like skateboard culture developed in my hometown. At one point in the 80s, there were two different rival skate shops and like, you know, people from all over the northeastern United States and Canada would come to our skate park for these giant regional contests. And a lot of the people that came out of that area uh, went on to be really relevant in the sport of skateboarding. You know, like we had a couple of guys that went and became professional athletes. We had a guy who went out and created one of the biggest skateboard companies in the history of the sport. Uh, and then we had me who went 3000 miles and tried to draw skateboard graphics and probably, you know, limitless other people who went and did something with it. Um, it's just funny when you're a little kid, like I said earlier, you don't really realize how special where you're from is until you go out into the world and sort of look back where you're from and realize, oh, shit, I was really lucky. Uh, that skate park and that time in my life, I worked in a skate shop that was in the middle of the town and uh, spent a lot of time staring at the board graphics and the stickers and the t-shirts and stuff in the dead of winter when there was too much snow to skate. And I, even as early as, you know, 10th, 11th grade was really like, I want to move to California and draw skateboard graphics. And so, you know, I kind of, it, it's a very unrealistic goal even today. I mean, like, but back then that was a career goal that maybe 25 people in the whole world had that job. And I don't think any of them got really well paid for it. So, you know, when in high school, they would say things like, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to move 3000 miles away and take out a bunch of student loans and go to art school and get out and maybe get a job doing something that 25 people have ever done. Uh, now, that's an exaggeration. I'm sure there was much more than that, but not a lot. It was not a popular or an easy job to get. Yeah. And I and I my family was just like, you're nuts. Like my art teachers were even like, don't do that. Like it's, you know. Uh, I think my mom didn't really want me to go so far away, but my father had a really romantic relationship with San Francisco and he really thought I, you know, I should at least get the chance to go out there and try it. And now selfishly in the mid nineties, San Francisco was the skateboard capital of the world. I mean, that's where Thrasher magazine is born and, uh, projected to all of us all over the world in the eighties and nineties, just what a skatable downhill city San Francisco was. And, you know, as well as I was in an age where I was choosing where to go for art school, I was also still skateboarding every day. And so I was going to take out a bunch of loans and go, you know, to art school on borrowed money. I wanted to go where skateboarding was, not just in the hopes that maybe I'd get a job, but also just because I was still skateboarding regularly. And even though I wasn't athletic enough to become a professional skateboarder, I was good at it and interested in it enough that I wanted to go where it was the best while I still had the knees, ankles and lower back to, to enjoy it. And uh, yeah. And I did. It was a wonderful choice and a killer time in San Francisco history to move there. Yeah. And a really interesting story uh, I, I've read about you is how your how your art really collided in, in, in respect of from a screen print industry into skateboarding uh, and all that big mashup in there. So just tell us a little bit about that journey outside of when you kind of left art school and, and just a, a, a timing uh, that sliding doors might a moment. It would have been completely different. But how did it kind of happen for you? Uh, you know, like I said, you know, they say when you go to college that the friends you make in school can be the connections that lead you to career, your career later on in life. And I, 
embarrassingly, like I didn't spend a lot of time at, you know, at the art Institute where I went to school. I was way more engaged in skateboarding at that point in my life. And probably for the amount of money I was spending for an art education, spent an enormous amount of time outside of school, skateboarding with other guys, my age, uh, my background had was my, my major in school was screen printing. Um, I had started screen printing when I was in high school, uh, for a guy who printed t-shirts in my neighborhood. And I, while I was in the art Institute, I worked in a wallpaper company, screen printing wallpaper. And I, my father was really adamant that if you're going to go to art school, take something where you can actually get a job. And I knew that screen printing, no matter where my art went, I could get a job. You know, it had a bunch of industrial applications and there's a million, at least back then, a million different actual paying jobs I could get. So I got out of school. I went on a road trip with some friends. I was staying in Portland and I got a call from a really close friend of mine. My friend Dustin called and he's like, hey, uh, and Dustin had a job in the skateboard industry running a big print facility. And he's like, my boss just left. I just got handed this gigantic company and I need an assistant. So immediately uh, I moved back to San Francisco and within a week had started this job, which theoretically was my teenage dream come true. Now, granted, I wasn't drawing graphics yet, uh, but having a background in printing and being able to to oversee all these brilliant, I mean, the, some of the artists I was working with in the 90s that were illustrating and designing those board graphics are some of the best to have ever done it. And I often joke with people that that was kind of like grad school. Uh, I walked into this print shop at in my early 20s to help double check colors and registration and the, the oversee the printing of t-shirts, stickers and skateboard graphics, like I said, done by some of the best artists in the sport. And it uh, changed my trajectory as a as a young adult, like not just as an artist, but like my friend Dustin throwing open that door and Fausto Vitello and Eric Swenson and the guys that ran Thrasher and Deluxe and the print shop I worked at. I mean, those guys took a chance on me and gave me a job and that job experience. I mean, I worked in that sport for about 10 years and that was the last full-time job I had. Yeah, uh, through that, that time in my life, those guys promoted me and supported me and helped get my art out there and helped me develop a little bit of a reputation and a name for myself. And again, doing exactly the job I had dreamed about doing in high school, even though it was completely unrealistic, uh, I somehow worked my way out of the print shop and into one of the art departments and started actually illustrating and designing boards. And between the print shop and the art department, you know, I worked for those that same family of businesses for a long time. And like I said, that by the time I left, I had enough of a reputation to be self-employed. And I, I owe those guys in that industry infinitely. It's just a crazy... I don't know. I talk about it all the time as cliche as it sounds is a crazy teenage dream come true. And I'm somehow still eating off it all these years later. Yeah. Oh, it's a, it's amazing. And not an easy uh, medium to print on, obviously the curvature of a board. Uh, and also, um, you know, every board's unique in respect of the timber. Uh, These are all slightly different. Um, so yeah, it, it must've really, uh, cause part of your role there was, was uh, QC effectively. So your attention to detail um, is, is obviously really reflected uh, in your, in what you were able to do, but then obviously you took that into your, your artwork and, um, what was the first board that you ever, did you ever draw, draw your first kind of board artwork? Um, did, yeah, and when, uh, when, when I was, it? when I was still working in the print shop, the guys that ran the art departments at a company called Think Skateboards, which yeah. was owned by a guy named Keith Cochran. And, uh, they knew how bad I wanted to do board graphics. And so they let me design a board from the print shop. Like I wasn't even in the art department. It was for a professional skateboarder named Jesse Paez. And it was a board graphic that was this like kind of pink rabbit thing that I've been drawing since high school. And the pink bunnies is like a gang of friends I've had since I was a kid, which is part of the, you know, core group of people I spoke about earlier that developed the skateboard culture that really inspired me to move to California and so on. So the board, the first board I ever did was a representation of me and my circle of friends and this sort of unbelievable trajectory at that age that got me to do something that I just didn't even think was possible. And uh, shout out to Jesse Piaz, who did, I don't even think understood why he had a big pink rabbit on the bottom of his board, but all these years later, he's uh, long since been pretty funny to talk to about it. So yeah, it was a, a giant pink rabbit holding a human foot on a keychain. Yeah. Uh, and that was just kind of something you used to draw as a kid uh, and kind of you, you've kept through your art now it was a symbol for me and my friends. And, um, I think when I moved to California, I'm the only person in my whole family tree that ever moved 3000 miles away from home. And I was pretty scared and pretty intimidated. And I wanted to create this persona. Like I was bigger than I really was. So I would sort of draw and, 
you know, make little stickers and do little murals about this, you know, gang of friends that I had that at that time was probably only like 12 people. Uh, but it gave me some way to stay connected to my friends back home. It also gave me this platform to project like I was part of something bigger than just me. It made me feel a lot bigger than I was at that age and also a lot less lonely, 3,000 miles from where I grew up. And that gang and that symbol and drawing that rabbit and rabbits similar to that one uh, sort of became my signature uh, over the years and still still is to this day. Yeah. Well, it kind of grew a little bit from there, uh, including into a New Balance collaboration. So I'll just touch on this uh, on uh, on the Pink Bunnies. My name is Jeremy Fish. I'm an artist and illustrator in San Francisco. I moved here in 94 to attend art school in hopes that someday I'd get out of school and draw graphics for skateboards. There was an opening in the art department at Think, and that was actually the last full-time job I had. The Sleeping Bunnies is roughly 100 dudes. The Denver chapter of, is the largest chapter of our gang. And 303 is a huge part of that and a huge part of why I like to do stuff for the shop. The 272 is a shoe that the shop and New Balance worked on together. Got to put this little bunny dude here where the ollie hole might be. These little blasts of color here on the side and 303 hit on the back. I'm a long-standing fan of New Balance, so the opportunity to work with them, with 303, and have it represent my circle of friends, kind of like a dream gig all the way around. Dream gigs. That's what we all strive for. Uh, yeah, what a fantastic collaboration. Got a couple more images here uh, that you've posted um, where you, you got to not only put this shoe together, um, but do some fantastic art and graphics and uh, and sneak a few of your little signatures in there as well. Um, how, how cool is that to be, to be able to, oh, obviously you've done many collaborations now, but this, this is one in particular that really kind of runs home with you being a collaboration with New Balance, being in the, in the skate world as well. And yeah, and I, I've had, I've been collecting New Balance for a long time, like running shoes primarily before they had skate before they even had a skate shoe department. I have a really uh, large collection of very sort of rare and valuable brown <laughs> New Balance running shoes. And part of the reason I got the job is Sam, who owns 303 Boards, knows that I'm a massive New Balance fan. New Balance fan. And so when they got the opportunity to do something with New Balance, he was cool enough to involve me and. That's kind of how I got involved. And it started out as a series of three shoes that because of COVID, the production got staggered. And so those ones you just showed are the first and the second shoe. There's a third one that's coming. And they've since, because the first two did so well, they've added a fourth shoe. So it's actually what started out as a series of three shoes that should have all dropped during COVID. Uh, it's now this kind of cool staggered series of four shoes. Uh, and I couldn't be more excited or proud of it. They, they've sold really well. It's been great for New Balance's skate department, which is still kind of new. Yeah. And again, as somebody who was never good enough to be a professional skateboarder, it's kind of awesome to almost have several, like, I don't know, like professional shoe models or whatever. Like, it, it's a it's something I'm really proud of. And, like, I, I feel cool when I put them on. I feel like Michael Jordan with a pen, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's so, so great to see art represented now across such a diverse uh range of of products um it's not just not just something used to print as a canvas or draw as a canvas now it's this stuff it's on everything pretty much Art, art's become you know a massive representation of the library of the world including uh some little details here uh for someone that you know necessarily wasn't into baseball as a kid um to be able to align yourself now with some of the biggest uh brands not only in, in san francisco but around the world uh, this must be kind of really cool. Just tell us a little bit about you know, San Francisco in particular and and um, and the Giants and obviously the 49ers, just a couple of things you've done there. I, uh, I'm not, I didn't grow up being particularly interested in mainstream sports, primarily just because I grew up skateboarding and, you know, it just wasn't really on my radar. But uh, I come from a big baseball family. My father tried out for the New York Yankees. His father tried out for the New York Yankees. And my grandmother, who just passed away last year at 104, was a diehard uh, Mets and earlier in her life a Cubs fan. So uh, the Fish family were big time baseball people. And I, you know, I understand the importance of those kind of sports at this point in living in San Francisco. You know, like I think as a young man, I didn't really care so much about it, but I've lived in San Francisco during some really volatile years. I mean, we became the most expensive city in the country in under a decade. 
And during that time period, we won endless sports titles. And at a time where the city is really getting to be like this, cost of living, tech versus non-tech, a huge shift in the city in a million ways, people were, you know, there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of people disagreeing. There's a lot of things for people to argue over. Sports was something that everybody was able to bond over. And that was a huge lesson for me to learn. Like, you know, as everybody in the city was getting pissed off about this or that, we'd win at the World Series and and literally you'd see total strangers of all different walks of life hugging in the street and bonding. And that was a huge lesson for me and something that made me much more attracted to sports, primarily because they were creating a social glue in a city that was un- coming unglued and like, you know, a city where there was a lot of conflict and these endless sports victories were really something that brought people together. And that's very attractive to me and like something I really got way more interested in. And not too long after all that started to happen, uh, the San Francisco, actually the San Francisco 49ers hit me up uh, when they moved the stadium down the peninsula and hired me to do a whole section of the stadium for the Super Bowl, which is still there. Uh, and then shortly after that, the San Francisco Giants reached out to me uh, and had me do a mural uh, on the second level of the stadium, which is just on the side of the Jumbotron. And those are projects I'm so, so, so proud of, primarily because I'm not even a sports fan. It's just having a conversation with the greater population where I live and, you know, supporting something that, in my opinion, brings people together at a time where people are kind of divided. And if I can help play some kind of minor role in that conversation, that's like something I'm really proud of. Yeah. Uh, And you've done some incredible scale uh, stuff as well, even recently. uh, This this one in particular in Miami. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and how long did this kind of mural take? It's it's pretty involved and it's 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 an awesome piece. I'll just uh, play a couple of images here while you while you tell us a little bit about about it. Uh, I'm not a muralist primarily. Like I paint murals, but I you know it's not the only thing I do or even the major focus of what I do. Um, I was given this opportunity by some guys that own some property in San Francisco's financial district that I'm working with to help kind of reinvigorate uh, a really beautiful building in the San Francisco financial district. The group that owns the property I'm working on in my city bought that building in Miami and they wanted to find a way to tie their properties together between their West coast, San Francisco properties. And now this East coast Miami building. So the theme of the mural is really uh, they wanted to show something that showed the relationship between California and Florida. And so I thought about, Uh, I had just learned that the Florida panther is like the official state animal of Florida. And they had chosen it in the 80s because the population had almost been decimated by like man's expansion in Florida as they built more and more housing and more and more retirement centers from the 60s, 70s and 80s. This encroached on the natural landscape of the panther and more and more of them got killed off to the point where I guess in the 80s there was something like less than 50 in the whole state. And, you know, the, the, the children of the state of Florida voted to make the panther the state animal and give it some priority and significance. And it's since uh, been able to replenish the population to some point where it's, it's, I don't think it's no longer endangered, but the population is growing. And uh, something I thought was cool because in California, you know, the symbol of our state and the, the image on the flag is the California grizzly, which similarly was killed off during the gold rush and, and California's early expansion. Uh, it was, it was exterminated. I mean, there is no, like original California grizzlies left in California, as far as I know. And like, I don't know, it seemed like one of the few things I could find. I draw a lot of animals and I think animals make a cool symbol in terms of telling stories about human beings. Um, so I chose the, the Florida Panther and the California grizzly as this like half and half, you know, coast versus coast kind of thing. Uh, I used a skull as a device inside that to kind of show that it was, you know, man's expansion that helped almost exhaust the population of both those animals. And also to be fair, I just really like to draw skulls. And I think a lot of that is growing up on a diet of skateboarding and working in that industry for a long time. And skulls are just fun to draw. It's like one of the much like portraits of women from the waist up, like the human skull is a popular symbol throughout art history and something I've just, I don't know, I've always just really enjoyed using it as a symbol in my art. But that mural, like I said, is far beyond my normal capability. Uh, I hired my these two gentlemen, uh, Guillaume and Daniel uh, from Los Angeles to, to fly out to Florida and help me paint it. I wouldn't have been able to scale up without their help. They both had a lot more experience painting that big. And, it, you know, it was a was a, the experience of a lifetime. It was scary as hell. 
we were supposed to start in January, but due to some red tape, we wound up starting in April. April can be kind of windy and rainy and, you know, we had a hurricane warning and storms and sporadic rain. And it was, a uh, yeah, it was a real experience. I'll never forget. I'm really proud of it. And it, it, uh, I'm going back to Miami as soon as I get home from here to attend Art Basel, which is like an annual art fair they have in Miami, which is just across the street from where my mural is. So it's a nice, uh, nice year to attend Art Basel and support the gallery I work with and go and celebrate the mural I worked on this spring. Yeah, very nice, very nice. All right, I'm going to change tack a little bit to the to the fish tank gallery. This is a great concept. Um, fantastic. I love this logo. It, it's kind of really, <laughs> really Thanks, cool. Uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about this little space. Um, it's a really unique little space for sure. And how did this come about? Uh, yeah, I'm... I'm uh, I'm in love with my neighborhood. I have a, a very uh, special relationship with North Beach. It's the little Italy of San Francisco. It's where my art school, uh, the San Francisco Art Institute, which has since closed, unfortunately, it was the oldest art school on the West Coast of the United States. And Ansel Adams started the photo department. Uh, Diego Rivera taught there. Picasso taught there for a semester. I mean, it's a very legendary art school. And I was very honored to go there. And so that's kind of how I became familiar with my neighborhood as a 19-year-old when I moved from the East Coast. I spent a lot of time in North Beach. As I got older and more successful and could afford it, I got an apartment over there. And I'm very proud to sort of represent my neighborhood. It's a very, very, very special part of San Francisco. It's the oldest part of the city. It's where the city began during the gold rush. Uh, it has a wonderful cultural history with Francis Ford Coppola and Zoetrope Films, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, City Lights Books, uh, Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, uh, you know, just this wonderful history of artists and writers and musicians and people who've made this neighborhood very famous for arts and culture uh, and to be a part of that legacy, or at least to even be considered a part of that is very, very important to me. And so I go out of my way to do a lot of work for my neighbors. And at some point I was offered this storefront uh, free of charge for five years from the generous people that run the pipeline marijuana dispensary next door. And they said, Hey, you know, you can use the space, uh, just continue doing what you're doing, do fundraisers, do things that bring people to your neighborhood, bring, you know, get people to support this district and support them as well. And so uh, if I'm not paying rent on the space and I have this little gallery, I don't take any money from the artists that show there. I feel like I need to pay it forward if someone's letting me have the space rent free. So I showcase all the artists I work with uh, and don't take any of their money. I also insist that they hang up the art. You show up at your opening, you talk about your art, you sell your art. Uh, the customers pay the artist directly, so I don't handle any of the transactions. Uh, my job is, however, to open the door 25 times a day and let people in and say, hey, the art on the walls is by my friend so-and-so. This is the medium they use. This is when they made the work. This is what the work's about. Uh, the artwork in the vending machine is mine. If you have any questions, let me know. I'm going to go back to work. And it's uh, it's been a fun recipe. I think, you know, having come up in the last 20 years working in more traditional galleries, it's been a real pleasure for me to showcase a lot of younger artists uh, and let them have the experience of like, you know, can I handle my own art shows if I rent out a space? Like, can I hang it and sell it? Or am I more comfortable working in the traditional gallery system? So the fish tank has been a wonderful thing for me to do kind of a, a art gallery experiment uh, and also bring an enormous amount of wonderful artists and foot traffic and business to my district, which is super important to me. And again, full circle, because my neighbors have offered me this space and given me the opportunity and responsibility to bring something special to a very special district that I love. Yeah, it's 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 such cool space. It's, it doesn't look very big overall, no, it's but it's not it very hard to fill either, which is nice. If you're having yeah. a show, you don't have to make a ton of stuff and you can make it pretty full. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Part All of right. that is this, the street that it's on gets a lot of foot traffic, like sure. tons of people walk up and down that street every day. It's a very touristy district. And the, the front of it's all glass and it's lit up all night. So I always tell artists like, you know, no gallery on earth gets as much, you know, eyes on what you're doing. So it's a, you know, it's an interesting location. And if you're ever in San Francisco, uh, stop by 1331 Grant Avenue and have a look. There you go. It looks, looks like a fantastic, uh, aptly named the fish tank, not only after yourself, but uh, even the size of the space and the fact that it's a little glass front. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a ring around the top of it, which I didn't know, like the contractors did it. And that's kind of where I came up with the name, like the top of the little front space has like a lip and it looks like the yeah. lip on a fish tank. So yeah, it's self-explanatory title. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Really cool. Speaking of cool spaces, uh, I'm just going to play a little video that we touched on before, but 
um, in City Hall and just kind of how City Hall came about for you. And then we'll touch on uh, this 100, 100 um, drawings in 100 days. Incredible effort. Uh, all right, here we go. This is my favorite. Oh. This is my favorite part. I would imagine some lucky politician somewhere along the way probably had a date up here. I am the first artist in residence at San Francisco City Hall, celebrating the building's 100th birthday by doing 100 drawings in roughly 100 days. fifth largest dome structure in the world. Maybe because there's all this gold around us, it just feels very royal and important. My whole motivation for this is taking what I feel like is the underappreciated landmark in San Francisco and trying to get people to celebrate it. I've lived in San Francisco for the last 21 years. I moved here at 19 to go to art school. I do participate in the gallery world, but I'm much more attracted to like a t-shirt on a guy in the street that causes a conversation. And this body of work is a much larger conversation with, I hope, everyone that lives here. City Hall is all of ours. And if you live here and you pay taxes, it's yours too. When the Arts Commission designed this project for me, somewhere in the initial meetings when they were like, well, how is anybody gonna know that you're there? And I said, well, I could wear a vest like I work at Target, you know? The other thing I asked for was an office. I'm like literally breathing in the disintegrating vapors of old blueprints. If I'm gonna sit here and ink a hundred drawings, I should get absorbed into the building's history as much as possible. Jim Rolfe was the mayor in power when City Hall was built and I included him because he was a big proponent of the building. If you look at things that were going on in San Francisco before the fire of 1906, it was a fairly corrupt place. The guys in charge of building the City Hall previous to this pocketed a lot of that money and corners were cut. When the earthquake and fire hit, that thing fell to bits. The citizens are thinking, this is our center of government? As it got time to rebuild it, we had to do it in a way that showed that we were rising up from tragedy, to the point of the phoenix being a symbol of our city. So the idea that I would have an opportunity to work in this building, let alone have access to the parts that aren't public, it's a privilege. I get to call home and be like, I have an office in City Hall in like a badass uniform. But the fact that in the three months that I've been in here, even the security guards don't know where I am. I also drew Willie Brown because they still to this day refer to this as Willie's house. And it's decided to honor people that are as significant culturally to San Francisco. Robin Williams, Herb Kane, because he wrote infinite articles that engage citizens. Jose Saria, the first openly gay political candidate. Fausto Vitello, who was the founder of Thrasher Magazine. Somebody I consider to be a real beacon of culture that brought me out here. I really do deeply feel an obligation as a guy who's lived here for 20 years to like engage the new San Franciscan and for the first time since the gold rush we have an enormous amount of people moving here. I'm trying to work with what's happening and, and not just like draw swords on everybody that isn't exactly like me and didn't move here for the same reasons I did, you know? They're moving here for really good jobs and I don't fault them for that. But I feel like it's my obligation to give them a reason to give a shit about the things that have been here long before they were. It isn't just your job or the technology that are here. The bunny is my connection to my past and my circle of friends that I grew up with. I hit him in a, not every drawing, but in a lot. I wanted them to still read as my drawings, even if the subject matter looked foreign to my audience. And it's kind of like me, like I'm hiding in the back corner of this building. Damn, that's a really cool thing. Um, I haven't watched that since it came out. That was heavy. Oh, great. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it because I was going to cut it at one stage and, and let people go away and have a look at it. But I thought it was really important to show kind of the diversity of what that really represented. That must be one of your proudest projects for sure. Uh, 
I don't know. I think my proudest project is probably the next one. I try not to dwell too much on stuff I did and oh. just kind of stay focused on whatever comes next. Like I said, I, I haven't watched that since it came out. And the people at KQED did an amazing job. It was really fun to make. Um, but yeah, I'm super proud of that. Like, I don't know. It takes a lot to get an office in City Hall. And I never got good enough grades to have that kind of job. So, um, yeah, the whole thing. It was just a really wonderful time in my life. All right, let's touch on uh, on the exhibition coming up, Jeremy. Uh, this is what the reason you're in Melbourne. Um, I hope this internet connection's hanging in there for us. Um, I'm going to touch on it now with uh, this Melbourne exhibition, Koala Bee Champ. Uh, this is an exciting one. Uh, just tell us a little bit about what we can expect uh, at this exhibition in Collingwood uh, starting this Friday. Well, it's 100 screen prints. Uh, screen printing, like I said earlier, it's my primary medium. It's what I studied in school. Uh, it's probably my favorite thing to do. Like I love doing drawings, black and white drawings and, and turning them into, you know, usually 50 to 100 screen prints. I went to a fine arts institution, like I mentioned, and, you know, fine arts at that time kind of preached this like, you know, fine art is holier than commercial illustration or commercial art or graphic art. And Somehow I've kind of landed in this weird lane that combines all three, but I feel like screen prints are my favorite because instead of generating one painting that sells for a bunch of money to one person, and then it's this very elitist conversation with the one person that could afford to have it with you, screen prints is usually an addition of a hundred and hopefully a hundred people like the drawing. And, and then I'm having a conversation with a hundred people that appreciate how hard I'm working and, and, and then, you know, hang it on the wall and, and have it in their life. And, that's really gratifying to me. And so this particular body of work, uh, this show was planned kind of last minute. I had a huge project this fall, uh, fall through. And so I planned a bunch of trips consecutively um, on fairly short notice. Uh, and so screen prints are a wonderful medium because I have all these. A lot of them are artist proofs from editions that I've sold out over the years. So some of these prints haven't actually been available. They may have sold out in a few minutes online, uh, but uh, you know, my printer always keeps printer proofs and I always keep artist proofs. And this is a nice way to make some of these very rare artist proofs available to people. And especially all the way around the world in Australia. Uh, it just, Eddie Zamet's a wonderful host. He was cool enough to help me plan this. Uh, I brought a cool variety of a hundred different images I've worked on over the last 15 years. And like I said, it's my favorite medium. I'm really proud of this work and I'm really proud to be here and share it with people. Well, I can tell you, uh, on behalf of Melbourne, before you get a chance to exhibit this, is we're really proud to have you here, uh, Jeremy. And and thanks to Eddie uh, Zamet, for who's a good friend of mine and a good friend of the show, of being able to put uh, put your little place, um, you know, very much in Melbourne. And, and I hope you've enjoyed your time here. Here's here's a little pick from from the last uh, couple of days here. Uh, how, how important was that to to tie in the koala and the kangaroo into into your trip here while you were here? Well, you know, I understand that if you're Australian, things as cliche as a, a kangaroo and a koala are probably not, you know, it's kind of an obvious thing to lean towards. But as somebody who's only been to Australia once and it was four days and, you know, seven or eight years ago, uh, I draw a lot of animals. And, you know, I had a show in Chicago. I drew a bear because that's their symbol. Uh, I had a show in Spain last month. I drew a bull because that's the symbol for Spain. Um, I drew a wallaby, not a kangaroo, because uh, the wallaby has a double meaning. It's also the name of my favorite shoe, which is a, a timeless walking shoe made by Clarks from England. And so I made a play on the koala, the wallaby, my favorite shoe, a rapper who also likes that same shoe. Basically, with only having been here once for four days, it's difficult for me to draw something that really encapsulates a city I don't know anything about. So I apologize to anybody who's a little sick and tired of seeing koalas and kangaroos down here. That being said, I did my best to tie them together in an interesting way. And you'll forgive me, I really love koalas and, and wallabies and kangaroos. And it was, uh, today was really, they took me to a really great uh, animal park where I was able to feed, um, I was able to feed kangaroos and uh, meet a wallaby, which I, you know, Never really seen a wallaby up close before, but I was able, or excuse me. Uh, uh, oh, dude, I just blanked out. Anyway, um, it was just a great animal park. I was able to see a ton of wonderful animals and 
you know, make friends with a bunch of them and feed a bunch of them. Um, just a great day all the way around. Sorry about that. You're all right. Was it Hillsville, Hillsville Sanctuary? Or the Mel uh, wasn't Melbourne's? No, it wasn't. We were outside the city and, uh, anyhow, it, okay. I'm, I, I just, uh, I got so excited about thinking about the animals. I, I got to meet a wombat and <laughs> like, yeah, really cool. I don't know. We don't have wombats where I live. And I realize for you guys, that might seem kind of odd, but man, I met this wombat named George while she was eating her lunch, got to pet her. It's just, you know, simple things for me are very satisfying. And I, I find animals to be a great reflection of, you know, a great way of telling stories. And uh, you guys have some really amazing animals we don't have. And it was so far, at least that's been the highlight of my trip. Oh, fantastic. And uh, give you a little bit of more influence to go back home and, and, and record a little bit more of this trip with through through a few extra drawings, maybe. But uh, absolutely, we appreciate yeah. spending your time, Jeremy, for sure. Um, we really look forward to having you here for a few more days. Uh, the, your latest book's just come out, um, Forever Ever After. Uh, this is, I think, a fourth book. Is that right from memory? That's uh, the seventh. Seventh. Yeah. There you go. I'm a little bit out, out of sync. No, no, but, okay. uh, there's a lot of them it's, and I'm proud of that too. Cause I, you know, I'm not a writer. So to have seven books means I've made a lot of stuff and a lot of publishers were generous enough to publish them. And this one I'm really, really proud of Uh shout out to the good people at Paragon books and Ken Harmon. Uh, this book was really heavy. I, this is the first book I've produced since the city hall project that same year in 2015, I, uh, I had a brain surgery. I had brain aneurysm that the doctors found and had an emergency brain surgery. And so Forever Ever After is all the work uh, I made pretty much after that brain surgery until now outside of the City Hall project. Um, and it's, you know, an enormous amount of paintings and drawings and sculptures and stories and travels and shows. And uh, the, out of those seven books, they're basically portfolios of things I made within different blocks of time in my career. And this one is my favorite easily, not just because the time in my life was really heavy, uh, I had a lot of just crazy things happen over the last uh, seven or eight years. And this book really encapsulates uh, COVID and divorce and death and health scares and epilepsy and just a lot of ups and downs in my personal life, as well as at the same time, a lot of ups and downs in the city where I live. Um, it's just been a very volatile, you know, seven or eight years. And I, uh, I don't know, I'm just, it's a book that I'm really proud of, not only because of the content, but I worked with an incredible book designer named Sean Roberts, who just really flipped it. He put a there's a hole in the cover that goes through to a statue that I made. And uh, there's little inserts with paper changes. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a very cool body of work, but it's presented in a really beautiful way. Fantastic. Sounds like uh, sounds like a great read and also a visual diary. And, and, you know, we never know what's around the corner. Let's face it, Jeremy, you've had a trials and tribulations the last few years, but any words of advice for kind of a young artist kind of trying to just make its way now um, after all these years, uh, you've learned some incredible lessons, no doubt, but what, just give us one, one bit of word of wisdom you could give to an artist to, uh, to be, you know, whether it's belief or whatever it is. Um, yeah. Just impart something for them. I think it might be one of the most like cheesy cliches things you could possibly say, but you know, believe in yourself and don't give up. Like, like I said, the story I told from the gate, like moving 3000 miles to draw skateboard graphics is a stupid idea, you know? And like the chances of me actually pulling that off were slim to none. And I think if you can imagine yourself doing something and you know, that's what you're meant to do, even if you're not positive, but you just have this gut feeling, don't listen to anybody. Do what you think you're meant to do. Life's short. You only get to do it once aim at something, throw yourself entirely at it. I worked my ass off in my 20s. None of this happened just because it was magic or I made a good decision or I got lucky or my friend got me a job. Like all those stories I told combined with the fact that shit from when I was 19 till I was 39, I barely did anything other than work. And don't give up. Just aim at what you think you should be doing and never say die. Yep. Look, great, great words of advice, uh, Jeremy, that's for sure. And we look forward to seeing you Friday night um, at the gallery. Uh, we will advertise the details here on the show um, and make sure that uh, everyone can get down there. hundred um, very unique pieces in respect of proofs um, and, and special releases that you've been, you've got kind of in up your, up your sleeve 
uh, after all these years. So it, it's a very unique. Um, have you ever done a show like this that, that combines kind of artist proofs and all sorts of things? Uh, as, as uh, a yeah, unique? I did a few this year for the first time, uh, primarily because I needed to fill a hole in my schedule from a large canceled project. But as I introduced it from the beginning, screen prints are my kind of my favorite medium. They're a lot more accessible than paintings or original drawings. And it's something that I can bring to cities where I might not be very well known and a total stranger could walk in and afford a piece. And I, that's a nice way for me to have conversations in a place where I never would have imagined being. And Melbourne is that place right now. I, it's, uh, you know, big thanks to Eddie Zamet for bringing me out here. Uh, big thanks to you for doing this interview. And a massive thanks to the people of Melbourne. Please come out on uh, this weekend and let's celebrate. Absolutely. All right, Jeremy, we might leave it there. We could talk for ages. Uh, and I'd love to get you on again to talk about some of your next projects you've got coming up in the new year. So um, thanks for joining me on episode 120 of So What's Been Happening. Hey, Aaron, before I go, I'm going to let everybody see the view from up here, all right? Absolutely. Look at this. That's Fantastic. the beautiful city of Melbourne in the CBD district. On You're a cold incredibly beach. lucky. Incredibly lucky to have that view on a beautiful night in Melbourne. Yeah, uh, there are worse, worse places to be right now than here. That's for sure. Absolutely. I'm sure you've heard the story uh, of the four seasons in one day in Melbourne. You've been very lucky with the weather here so far. Long yeah, it's may it continue. Nice. Yeah. Thanks, right, Aaron. Jeremy. Have a great Thanks. evening. A great Appreciate night. it. Cheers. Well, how special to have Jeremy Fish uh, join us and have a chat about his life and career. Uh, we could talk for a lot longer, but uh, we understand that we're kind of limited with time as well. But we will touch on um, a few of those upcoming uh, things. But this is the main one. The Koala Bee Champ is where you want 82 Stanley Street, which is the gallery is known as on the corner. On the, the gallery on the corner uh, is where you're looking for. So it's on only this weekend, 24th to 26th of November. Please come and check it out. Um, and just a quote from Jeremy, uh, the show's title blends notorious Australian wildlife with a creative twist on the name of mine, Ghost Face, Killer's Favourite Shoes. It's an exciting experience to illustrate and uncover various animals that I've never attempted to sketch before. So an exciting time to catch up with uh, Jeremy and come down and meet Jeremy himself. Um, and thanks again to Eddie Zamet for curating this and also um, organising this interview for me. I really thank Eddie as a great friend of the show. Um, sadly, he's still a Tiger supporter, but that's okay. We can we can deal with that for another year. Um, we must make sure that Jeremy's uh, got himself an AFL team before he leaves, and there's no doubt it's more likely going to be the Tigers. But I will do my best Friday night, I promise you, Jeremy, to uh, convince you that Melbourne is actually the team that you should be following. So, um, all right, guys, we're going to end it there. Uh, congratulations uh, to everyone involved in this gallery and this show. Um, it's going to be great. There's a real chance to buy a unique piece um, from Jeremy Fish. So uh, just before we do and touch on, um, this is the spot that you're looking for, um, for any extra details for Jeremy. It is Silk sillypinkbunnies.com uh, that's one you probably won't forget after you've seen it the first time but there is a unique story to it as we touched on before so make sure you check it out look forward to everything and see you out there we've got another couple of shows coming up next week which we'll advertise shortly but have a great week and we appreciate everyone jumping on um, that does in the future and also to the all incredible guests that have joined us on this show so have a great week and we'll see you out there